1: Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk.
2: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Joining me today is Dr. Stan Tatkin. He is a couples therapist known for his pioneering work in helping partners form happy, secure, and long-lasting relationships. Today we are discussing his books, Wired for Dating and Wired for Love. Welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Rebecca. How are you?
2: I'm good. Um, I'm so um, glad you can join us today. Um, How did you get started um, and interested in helping couples?
3: Well, I spent uh, many years working with uh, something called personality disorders, uh, people who have uh, uh, a long, long history of, of, uh, of uh, interpersonal problems, and that led me to, pre- you know, to do some prevention work with mother-infant pairs, actually based on the Hinks Institute, which is up in Toronto, uh, the Watch, Wait, and Wonder program. I don't know if uh, your audience or anybody knows about the mirrors, but they impressed me many years ago, their, their work with, uh, with little children. And, uh, uh, and so I wanted to do um, prevention of disorders. That actually led me to working with adult romantic pairs um, for a couple of reasons. One, it was John Gottman's publications of his psychobiological work. And uh, two, I went through a divorce <laughs> and that was maybe the worst time in my life. And uh, so I devoted all my energy into understanding what happened in my own marriage and applied everything I knew to infant attachment, infant brain development, to, to adult pair bonding. And, and here I am now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, well, it seems like you're, you're doing some good work. Um, your books, uh, both of them are, are very informative, but also really easy to read, which isn't always the case. You know, you can um, go through them in um, an easy amount of time um, and, and do the work because there's a lot of, of questions and they're like workbooks in there, yeah. which I think is really helpful as well. Um, in in your books, one of the main things that that you talk about is the attachment styles, and I think yes. before we get into the nitty gritty of of the rest of the books, we should um, maybe you can explain what those are for us.
3: Well, attachment basically the the styles laid out in the book are based on uh, on uh, research models in attachment, infant attachment, and adult attachment, and what it means. It's not personality that uh, people should know that we're not talking about personality. We're talking about Adaptation to environment, the environment we're born into, and if the culture that we're born into, the family culture, uh, emphasizes the the you know the relationships, if relationships come first, uh, generally speaking, those relationships are deemed secure, and uh, and so that's that's a very general way of putting it. Um, to the degree that the relationships don't come first in families of origin. Uh, uh, the child is insecure, or at least the children brought up in that environment will be less than secure uh, because relationships are not the central feature, not the central value. So, for instance, in some families, uh, performance, appearance comes first, right? Self-esteem uh, is the prevailing um, good in the family. And the the family organizes itself around those themes, and therefore the relationship falls behind in terms of importance. And a child is expected to be smart, uh, you know, be uh, uh, very good at sports, be attractive, make the family look good, and so on. Um, On the other side of the spectrum, uh, there are certain family cultures where the child is encouraged to stay dependent and to take care of at least one of the parents' emotional state. And that also creates a problem, too, where the relationship is not central, but the child's, you know, um, uh, the importance of the child having to take care of one of the parents becomes the all-important thing. And in both cases of insecure attachment, the family systems are too unfair, too unjust, and too insensitive too much of the time, and that's carried forward into adult relationships.
2: Okay, and and these are, are called the the anchor, the island, and the wave in your body. Right, the anchor island. Yeah. Right.
3: So the anchor would be considered someone who is who is basically secure. In their relationships starting from very young, or at least gained that way, you know, gained a secure attachment through reparative relationships. Or a wave, um, we would say it belongs to a group that clings, that's the person I talked about, that has to take care of at least one person's emotional state. And then the distancing group, which includes the island, um, is that culture where uh, performance and self-esteem comes first. Some, the child had to manage at least one parent's self-esteem throughout childhood. And so you, you have uh, people who are afraid of having their independence stolen and uh, versus people who are afraid of being abandoned and left.
2: Okay. Um, now, in, in preparation for the show, you, you actually have, um, I think it's in the Wired for Dating book questionnaire about um, how to figure out, you know, where you are and, and where your uh, partner, prospective partner is according to how they were raised and what happened in their childhood. And yeah. and I had mm-hmm. a few people do th- this with me just so that we could, you know, understand it. Um, okay. And a lot of time it, it made sense. But I guess one question that came up is a lot of time, the upbringing isn't as, as clear-cut as what you've explained, and one parent's one way, so you could have a, a parent who's an anchor and a parent who's, you know, an island or a wave, and so one person actually um, balanced on two of the the attachment styles. So what, what does that mean for when they come into a relationship?
3: Well, people should understand that these are based on research models that, that look at aggregates of people, so there is no there is no accurate way of, of pigeonholing a person here. The the only thing that th- this does is to help people understand how they how they become when they when they're dependent on another person. So I start to get into a relationship with you, and uh, and as I commit to you, I will start to remember experiences I've had. When depending on another person. Now if those experiences were of the kind where I was afraid of losing my independence or losing myself or losing my stuff, that falls in line with island culture. And the reason it would be important for me to know this is so that I can, uh, I can take responsibility for my distancing behaviors when I get into a relationship with you. And I can understand what scares me and not simply distance uh, automatically without repair. In other words, it gives me more information about how I will behave, likely behave in a relationship where I'm dependent. Now, most people are ishy, like islandish, ish. -ish. So people have to keep that in mind, that these are behaviors that are in line with, with experiences from early childhood. There are some people who are hard and fast this way, and that's usually the primary parent often the mother, right? So let's say the mother is very insecure, either on the clinging side or the distancing side, even if my father is an anchor, I'm still going to carry some of those insecurities because the primary figure in my life was my mother. That is a theory. That doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate and it's always going to hold true. So people should take this with a grain of salt. The purpose of this is simply to understand the movements of the other person or ourselves when we get into a relationship like this. How do we move toward that person and how do we move away from them? It's really simply about that. It's not about pathology. It's not about good or bad. It's simply nature. It's simply how we remember the experience of dependency.
2: Okay. Um, so when, when we're, um, you know, you're saying we can do some repair on these, but how how do these um, attachment styles come together and relate to each other?
3: Well, they all relate to each other. There is no uh, was, people would think, well, you know, uh, islands and islands would get together, and they often do, actually, uh, or that the you know the wave and the island couldn't possibly do it, but they often do. And it's you think of it as you know, can cats and dogs get along together? Um, they certainly can, and uh, and so it, it isn't really a problem unless people don't understand themselves. They don't understand the person they're with. They don't speak that language. They don't understand that their brain actually operates a little bit differently. They see the world a little differently. So a lot of this is just, um, uh, you know, learning to understand others. Um, uh, Now, if somebody is highly insecure and they don't know they are, or if they are not interested in something we call secure functioning relationships, that person may not be the ideal partner, not because they're an island or a wave, but because they don't really um, uh, care at this point um, to form a secure functioning relationship with another person. And what that means is that despite my background, you and I decide to have each other's backs, be in the foxhole together to protect each other in public and private. In other words, we form a two-person system of protection, where we uh, where we provide cover for each other and uh, and protect each other from the hostile environment and from predators, this is a, a very basic biological need uh, for all mammals. So uh, here we're talking about a higher purpose, a higher need for survival. We put aside our our uh, our styles, and we we override them by a greater good, which is, you know, we're in this together. We better survive together. Therefore, it's in our best interest to be in each other's care.
2: Okay. So... Um I want to talk first about, um, I think, you know, a progression of relationships. Of course, first we have dating. So, um, yeah. you know, the the attachment styles are, are in both of your books. But when, when we're dating, um, you know, there are certain things that you also go through that there's some um, myths about dating that that you felt should be dispelled. Can you just tell us what some of those
3: are? What we have, you know, we have holdovers uh, from previous generations, um, like the me generation. But uh, ideas like you have to love yourself before you can love another person, which developmentally is hogwash. Um, we are always loved first, you know. We we are regulated first from the outside, and we don't do anything very well um, except learning from the outside in first, and then we start to do it ourselves. So we we learn to love ourselves by loving another well and by being loved or the other myth is you've got to you know you've got to know yourself before you can know another person which is not true or before you can be in a relationship um we this is all done in tandem we i learn to 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 know who i am in relationship with you and by knowing you very well i begin to know myself as well So we have these ideas out there that that are contrary to to the human condition, to the way we're wired, and it's getting people uh, off track and thinking that they have to wait a long time or go into therapy in order to be in a love relationship, and that's just not true. Uh, This is done by doing it and failing and then doing it again and hopefully learning to do it better and better.
2: Okay. Okay. yeah, you know, it, it's interesting when you say that. I know in your book you talk about, um, you know, a, a baby learns to love because it, its parents love love it. And, yeah. um, you know, that, that myth about you have to love yourself, I think a lot of people wouldn't end up in a relationship. And we wouldn't end up being challenged in ways that we need to be if we're just on our own all the time.
3: That's right. Uh, you know, I think there was another one in the book, um, you know, uh, Soulmates. This idea of soulmates. Now, if you and I, you know, were together and we, we formed a secure functioning relationship, one that's based on, you know, fairness, justice, and sensitivity and mutuality, I could say you're my soulmate because I've already found you. But at a full stop, looking in, in the dating world for my soulmate is is silly because... A lot of people think there's only one soulmate out there, or maybe there's a couple. Uh, that would be impossible odds. Um, the person who is our soulmate is the person that, we've, that we decide, hopefully, decide to enter into these set of agreements with, that we're going to be in each other's care. We're going to take each other on as burdens because we can, and because the alternative is, is not very good. So these are decisions that people make, uh, you know, adult decisions. Uh, because based on, again, survival, uh, based on also being able to thrive in this world. So pair bonding is essential not simply to have offspring, but to protect each other, to deal with existential fears together, to to help us calm each other at, uh, at night when life becomes scary. It serves a very real practical purpose.
2: Okay. Okay. Um- What what's the fog of infatuation?
3: Oh, the fog of infatuation. Well, I think we all
2: really know what that is, but (laughs) you can tell us a little bit.
3: Well, you know, when we meet somebody, we're on drugs. That's just the way it is. We're on drugs. Nature puts us on a very fancy cocktail, a mixture of uh, of you know dopamine and uh, uh, and testosterone and oxytocin and vasopressin and all sorts of neurochemicals and hormones that allow us to be alert and interested in the person, Um, it's part of the addictive system, actually, that gets activated that we call now exciting love. And it's the kind of, um, it, these are the, the chemicals that kind of make me want to come back to you again and again, and that make me perseverate or obsess about you when I leave you for the first time. Otherwise, I would just forget you, and I would move on. So nature has built in a system here. That keeps us infatuated with us with each other, but we're not exactly good in terms of our judgment. Um, m- many of these hormones actually, uh, you know, uh, create a problem with judgment. Um, for instance, uh, alcohol—not that people are going to be drinking alcohol when they meet each other—but alcohol will change your perception in terms of the other person's uh, symmetry or asymmetry in the face. But just testosterone alone will uh, will make you uh, feel terrific with this person. Uh, but when that fades away, you may feel differently. You may think differently. So it's a good thing to jettison us, to get us, you know, into a relationship, but it's not going to take us all the way through. It just gets us started.
2: Okay. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Stan Tatkin. He's the author of Wired for Dating and Wired for Love. We're going to be back shortly.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
2: Hi everybody, welcome back. Today we're talking with St- Dr. Stan Tatkin. He's the author of Wired for Dating and Wired for Love. So, Stan, um, in your book Wired for Dating, you talk about vetting your partner um, or prospective partner, I suppose, somebody that you're dating and and you're getting serious about. Um, what what does that mean to vet them?
3: In the old days, in the you know, if, if we were if we were back into into a, a tribal civilization. The vetting would be built in because uh, we'd be taking that person who's let's say outside of our tribe or outside of our village. We, you know, that person would have to pass muster within our extended family in our village. Um, so basically, vetting means that we're taking a prospective partner around to our male and female peeps, right? Um, to have them sniff us out as a couple, you know. And and if we ask our friends, which we should, both male and female friends that we trust, please tell me, honestly, how do we look together? Uh, am I myself when I'm with this person? Do you like this person? Do you like me with this person? Um, this is an important thing to do because, as I said, we, we are in a – we're sort of in a fog in the beginning – of a relationship, excuse me, sorry, um, in the beginning of a relationship, and so we need others to check us to 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 look at from a different point of view and give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, this is the way it 's been done uh... for ages but we're not doing that very much these days and it's a problem so i will see people sometimes coming to my office and uh... there was one lady in particular uh... she was very disheartened to find out after thirty years of marriage her husband had been cheating with everybody and i asked her you know, did you take your partner around to your friends and what do they think of your partner and she said all my women friends loved him and I said, what about your male friends? And she said, they did not like him. They thought he was creepy. So, there you go. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, uh, if for sure thing, because people can be wrong anyway. But there is something to be said for, uh, taking this person around and having other people, uh, give feedback, young and old, uh, male and female, about their, how they feel about you. Because they're fitting into your culture as you are fitting into their culture, hopefully. And we know that people who don't do this uh, and they don't vet or they don't have friends to vet with are less stable in their relationships going forward than people who do. So I advise that people start to, uh, you know, gear up their social network and use those people to, uh, to counter uh, what may be uh, a judgment issue uh, when falling in love with another person.
2: Well, and I think, as you said, you know, in the beginning, we're in that, that fog of infatuation. We talked about that before the break. And, um, you know, if, if you're in that fog and you can't see um, what, what's behind it, um, it's nice to have someone who can see through it.
3: Yes, it does. It really does.
2: Yeah, so um, you have some a lot of advice on dating and, and actually your book was um, recommended to me after um, getting divorced. Um, I've been divorced for three years and I remember the first time I went on a date, it was almost like a practice date because I mean it had been what, 12 years be- since I had been you know, out dating anybody and I think there are a lot of people in the same situation who also don't want to to go through, like as you and I both did, a divorce, and they want to find, you know, that um, do it right, you know, whether there's going to be some challenges, but that commitment to be the the right one. Um, How would you recommend somebody go through that dating process, getting over the nerves and anything else that can happen when they're going on all these dates to find somebody?
3: Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you're thinking about uh, that oh boy I've got to do this thing which I hate um, which is uh, sometimes a humiliating process uh, other times just plain disappointing it's like Sisyphus rolling the the, 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 the the boulder up the hill and just for it to roll down again um, dating is for a lot of people a very depressing proposition and uh, So you can think of it as I'm going out on a date, or you can think of it as I am going to expose myself to various people and learn how to work and understand people and to read them. So in the book, we talk about Sherlocking, which is basically another way of vetting somebody, Uh, and that as I is, let's say you and I are going out, I'm going to stay as present as possible, and I'm going to focus all my attention onto you which helps the jitters because I'm not looking or not thinking about myself so much. I'm spending all of my visual attention on every detail of your face, your eyes, your hair, your hands, what you're wearing, everything. I watch how you're moving. And this uh, this attention, this focus allows me to be less self-conscious and also allows me to really see you and find you and Let's say I don't end up going out on a second date with you. Well, no harm, no foul, because I can still enjoy meeting a new person and seeing how much I can learn about them in a short amount of time. So if people, you know, think of it in this way, there is no waste of time, not really, because you're practicing your skills on how to read faces, how to read voices, how to read movements, um, really paying attention. You're you're becoming better at interaction. You're becoming better at reading people, which by the way, is one of the ways that we fall in love. The more we pay attention, the more present we are with whatever we're focusing on, the more we tend to enjoy it, actually. So, uh, and the more we look into each other's eyes, Uh, the the greater the chance that we fall in love because love is through the eyes. Um, Lust is uh, at a distance. Love is up close always. Uh, The eyes are extremely important. So if you're thinking of it in that way, you're going out and you are brushing up your skills or you're learning to be really good at this, at reading people very quickly, it, I think, makes it more fun and more enjoyable and more purposeful.
2: Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. Um, you know, just enjoying that you're there, whether it's going to turn into something or not. <clears throat> yes, and and yeah, and I'm enjoying. Sherlocking,
3: and Sherlocking because I'm I am paying attention to every detail. Okay. I can find things out about you without having to ask direct questions. I can I can be smarter than that. I can be more clever than that, and uh, and also the presence of being able to or uh, focusing my attention on you um, is always complimentary. Nobody objects to that. People do object to feeling interrogated. So the purpose of this is to learn about people without interrogating them.
2: Okay. Um, so how how do we go about doing that? How do we also know like the attachment style of, of our partner or the person that we're dating so that we can relate to them a little better and understand them?
3: Well, islands tend to islands have certain behaviors and, again, people have to keep this in mind that when uh, going out on a first or second date, everyone is nervous. So you can't get an accurate read on people uh, in the very beginning unless they absolutely tell you things that sound like, oh, oh this is a very strong island. Um, someone who distances, someone who doesn't depend on anybody, someone who doesn't really uh, look at you and pay attention to you but seems to be talking about themselves all the time, uh, maybe doesn't treat the waiter or wait- very well. Maybe describes a lifetime of independence as if that is the greatest thing of all to be independent. That should raise a flag that you're with possibly, possibly with an island, someone who distances, somebody who values their independence and their autonomy, and needs to bolster their self-esteem all the time. Or you may be with someone. Who um, who sounds like they've had trouble in relationships because they cling a lot. They they focus on being left or being disappointed or being abandoned. Um, they are hyper focused perhaps on you um, and and not on themselves. They don't really talk very much about themselves, but they're very interested only in you. Um, there may be signs that this person uh, talks a great deal and needs to talk a great deal. Um, waves love to talk. That's how they calm themselves down. Um, they love to interact. Uh, this is very important to them, but they also have a hard time with separations. And so you might get a read on this person that they have difficulty when separating from you. They may be a wave. So all of this to say this is not a reason why you wouldn't go out with them again, but now you are better armed to understand possibly how they operate, how they think, and that should give, and that should allow you to Uh, to actually learn more about them, not less.
2: Okay. Um, And so when we're going through this process, how do we know that we've found a good match when it
3: happens? I've been doing this for so many years, and I can always tell when somebody um, has met somebody significant. And, uh, they, they talk differently. They, they can't stop talking about this person. And they talk about them in real ways, not just how handsome or beautiful they are, but what a good heart. This person is a real deal. They're a good person. I watch them. Uh, I see how they interact. This person seems to be well filled out. Um, you, you get a sense of admiration um when when that person talks about this person, and then you get a sense that this is a real contender um, from the outside. From the inside, the same thing happens if you find that you can't stop talking about this person. you feel like you've met the greatest thing since sliced turkey and And those things that you're talking about are real. They're not simply about money or about where this person lives or how great their car is. You're talking about the character of the person, the character of the person, the moral compass of the person, and, uh, and you seem to fall in love with, um, with that character, right? I think that's a good sign that you're on to something, and that's a person well worth taking around to your friends.
2: Okay. Um, it, you, you talk a lot about the couple bubble. Can you explain what that is?
3: Well, the couple bubble is an uh, an idea um, that when when a couple uh, gets together, let's say you and I get together, we create a third thing. That third thing is the relationship. Now, you might think that the relationship is the same with anybody you go out with, but it isn't. Your relationship with me is going to be like a fingerprint. It can never be duplicated again. That's because there's a certain kind of mystical phenomenology that goes on between two people that we we still can't explain but it's a mixture of two people two nervous systems and we create a unique thing that we want to protect it's like our ecosystem our our terrariums, the air we breathe the water we drink it's our safety and security system and we protect it at all costs so that couple bubble means that you and i are at the top of the food chain we're leaders we're generals And we are in charge of each other. We're in each other's care. We move and operate together as a team. And we protect this team at all costs. We never mess with the safety and security system by threatening the relationship. That's a big no-no. We never do that because we understand that that causes havoc uh, day to day in our lives. We instead take fears off the table. We take existential concerns off the table. So we we have resources now to spare. The couple bubble is an agreement of protection, uh, of primacy, and we let people in, but we do so by agreement, we just don't let third things or third people in in a way that disrupts the harmony of our relationship. So the bubble is protective.
2: Okay, Um, so uh, how do we go about establishing the bubble?
3: Well, it's going to take a while because you can't say somebody in the beginning when you're dating them, hey, are you interested in having forming a couple bubble? Um, <laughs> that would be a turnoff. Um, but I think, and this is very important for your audience, people make lists about their ideal partner, and that is a mistake. People should be making a list of what the ideal relationship should be. And that relationship not only is you, but the other person. So if you want a secure, functioning relationship, you should start to think about what would be good for you and that partner with the question mark, whoever that partner will be. For instance, I believe that the relationship should come first. I believe that we should be fully transparent with each other, not because we have to, but because why not? Um, Why would we do anything other than that? Because not being transparent spends a lot of resources, right? I believe mm-hmm. that we should have each other's backs and protect each other, public and private, and so on. So if I meet you and you don't seem to fit into that, that, that idea, you don't seem to be interested in transparency, you don't seem to put relationships first, you're not somebody I want to continue seeing because that would be a deal-breaker for me. Again, it's not the person. It's, it's uh, does that person fit into the idea of the ideal relationship? And too many times we skip over that or we don't even think about it, and we end up going for uh, for someone who actually carries with them a number of deal breakers which we either don't discover or we ignore until uh, 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 way down the line, uh, such as I want children and you never want children. People do this all the time. They get together even though there is a big deal breaker there. So focus on the ideal relationship, not the ideal person, I think that's a safer way of, of finding uh, somebody who's actually appropriate.
2: Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Dr. Stan Tatkin. He's the author of Wired for Love and Wired for
4: Dating. We're going to be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice
1: As we age, our health can decline. For some, it's a slow, even process. While for others, it can happen at a much faster rate. The health decline can start in people as young as their 30s. Did you know a lot of age-related diseases can be prevented, reversed, or eliminated? It's true. You'll find out more every week on Healthy Aging with Dr. Denise Bogard. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. It's your life. Keep it going well.
2: Hi everybody, welcome back. Today we're talking with Dr. Stan Tatkin. He's the author of Wired for Love and Wired for Dating. Um so Stan, before the break, um you know, we talked about the couple bubble. Um and then you did mention something about thirds. What does yeah. that mean?
3: Thirds? Well, it's think of this that that uh, a relationship uh, is a uh, you know, a committed romantic relationship, although it doesn't have to be Romantic, by the way, there are plenty of uh, secure functioning couples that are not romantic, but it's a, it's a situation where we consider it a, a primary attachment relationship of interdependency, uh, and so. Um, God, I almost forgot what your, what your question was. Could you just repeat the question?
2: <laughs> what, what what thirds are for the couple bubble? <laughs>
3: What is? It? I'm sorry. Say that once more.
2: What's a what? It was. A, what is a third in relationship oh, to a couple? Right.
3: I'm bubble.
5: sorry. Yeah. Golly.
3: That's okay, okay. so So, uh, so a primary attachment relationship is a dyad, um, and then so we're there. Are uh, but the world exists as triads and more. So there are third people, third things, third activities, third tasks. Um, a, a mother could be a third. An ex-spouse could be a third. A child could be a third. Alcohol or pornography could be, be a third. Anything could be a third. And um, and and if it intrudes on the resources of our relationship, let's say you are you and I are in a primary relationship, then that causes trouble, especially if. You're, you or me are relegated to third wheel, and we are demoted in some way. That is a sure way to end a relationship. Relationships where people are mismanaging thirds and sidelining their partners or throwing their partners under the bus for, for another thing or person are doomed. We know that that is going to be uh, <clears throat> a death, uh, uh, you know, a killer in the relationship. And this is one of the reasons why remarriages have such poor uh, stat, uh, statistics it's not because uh, that there is an increasing number of people to manage, like ex-spouses and stepchildren and so on. It's that people still haven't understood the primacy of the attachment relationship and that they have to uh, they have to decide who gets in and who doesn't get in. So you and I um, share and create resources. If somebody tries to compete with those at your cost, somebody has to lose. I have to make sure it's not you. And if it is you, I have to realize that that was a mistake and I have to fix that uh, right away because it's not supposed to happen. And this, by the way, is true even in, in, um, in polyamorous relationships and also in polygamous cultures. There's always a primary, and that primary is the person that the, uh, that, that gentleman will always run to for comfort or celebration.
2: Okay, so how can we um, stop this from becoming an issue?
3: I think by being aware of it, uh, one of the greatest tragedies—tragedies uh, tragedies that I hear about—that uh, starts a relationship and, and stays a memory for a long, long, long time, is when during the the wedding or, or prior to the wedding, one partner doesn't protect the other from a hostile friend or family member, and uh, that's a big mistake. And that person right away feels thrown over for somebody else. Um, uh, people who do this or these kind of experiences have a very long memory and uh, create a lot of trouble because I think it's sort of built into our DNA. And when we're in a, an, a primary attachment relationship, we do not expect to be secondary or third, right? We don't uh, expect to be demoted or thrown to the side. And that creates a, a big injury and a trust issue, a safety issue for, uh, for time to come until that's corrected.
2: Okay, um, in your book uh, Wired for Love, you talk a lot about um, the primitives and ambassadors. Can right. you explain? Can you explain what those are?
3: Well, um, first, I'm a psychobiologist, and that just basically means we, you know I study the brain and the body. So here we're talking about the brain, and to make it easy on people, we're just dividing the brain into two areas: uh, the primitives are basically the subcortical areas that are extremely fast and cheap to run. They don't require a lot of oxygen or glucose to run, which means they're extremely efficient, and they basically run our day. Now, the higher cortical areas, the neocortex that we pride in so much, Uh, This is a very expensive unit, uh, very expensive components that have to use a lot of oxygen and glucose to run, and they're very slow. And while they're very good at error correcting and regulating um, our bodies and our brain, um, they are not going to be operating very well if we are under threat. So as soon as our stress level goes up and as soon as our threat level goes up, which could be just anything from the way you're looking at me or the way you're talking to me, I don't like it, I feel threatened, I start to go more with my primitives. My primitives start to take over. And uh, the the primitive areas are run by memory, something called procedural memory. I'm going to be fully automatic now, and I get into fight or flight. I'm going to be very reflexive, very automatic. And I may not consider the relationship. I may just be considering my survival. So the primitives are interested in survival not so much in relationship, um, and we have to watch out for that and be careful to keep each other uh, from going there. So how do you do that? When you and I are in a fight, we uh, are face-to-face, hopefully an eye-to-eye. That's necessary. And we watch each other, and we make sure that uh, that we are friendly enough during the fight to make sure that these primitive areas don't think that they're facing down a predator because it's very easy to happen. So I, you know, I say to you, I love what you do, and I'm so happy that you're in my life. I, you know, I appreciate everything you do for me, but this thing that you did really makes me very angry, and I don't like it. Okay, so, so um, I'm respecting the idea that I have to remain friendly to you. Otherwise, if you become threatened by me, you will not hear anything I say. You will get ready to fire back, and that's the way our conversation will go, and that's not very wise. So it's in my best interest to make sure that I'm friendly enough to you to keep that in check and to to disarm this area that wants to shoot first and ask questions later.
2: Okay. So, um, I mean, this has a lot to do, it sounds like, with arguing in a relationship, which I think is... um, I mean, one one of the major things, if you can't argue, well, you're not going to get very far in in other aspects of your relationship. So how um, does this help us um, in a relationship?
3: Because insecures, uh, their culture is a one-person psychological system, meaning the, the culture insecures come from are too unfair and too unjust too much of the time. And so people who are insecure tend to be oriented towards themselves only. And when in a struggle for what they want or what they're afraid of, they don't include the other person. They simply stand, they take a stand for themselves. And people have to understand that when someone does that, they force the other person to do the same, and now these two people are squared off, and they're going to be now adversaries. That's not a very good situation for getting what you want. The better situation is where I take care of you at the same time I take care of me, I take care of your needs and wants and what you're afraid of. At the same time, I let you know what it is I want or what it is I fear. This then disables your primitives from thinking you're with someone who does not have your interests in mind. You understand? So if we're both doing that, this is how we create win-win situations. You do not have to worry about me because I'm already telling you I know what I do, and I'm admitting to it, and I understand what you're afraid of or what you want, and I'm going to guarantee you get it, but here's what I want as well. So this is a very basic uh, technique that all good negotiators know, that you don't get anything unless you cater to the need of the person that you are trying to negotiate with. In a love relationship, uh, we bargain. We don't compromise. And the idea that uh, that I am going to take a stand for my needs and wants without thinking of you, the idea that I'm going to get anything from that, is really very childlike. Um, nobody does that. And so people have to start thinking in terms of a two-person system, fully mutual, fully collaborative, we're you know we're we are moving together in time. I have to take care of you simultaneously uh, to taking care of myself. That's how we do it.
2: Well, it sounds a lot like um, understanding your partner's attachment style would be helpful with this because you said you address their fears, so um, and that and then you you say what you need as well. So you're helping that person, and of course, if you don't know what it is that's triggering them,
3: obviously you're not going to get very far. Well, another way to put it, I have to be an expert on you, and you have to be an expert on me. Um, I have to be a Rebecca Whisperer, otherwise, um, what's the point of the relationship? I'm supposed to be your primary. I'm supposed to be very, very good at you, um, and you're supposed to be very, very good at me because we're, we are moving together in life and we're protecting each other. But people don't take this seriously. They take each other for granted. Once the novelty wears off, they automate each other. They put uh, they put each other in procedural memory, and they start to um, not pay attention or not be present anymore, and this, again, is a problem. So those people who remain present, main, remain interested, are looking at their partner, listening, uh, and really know their partner inside and out, are actually able to get more and able to move their partner around much more easily without using fear or threat or guilt, and that's what we want.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, this brings us into what I was going to ask next. I think it's, it was uh, in your book. You 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 say you want to identify the three or four things that can make your partner feel bad, and as well as what uplifts them, so you can help them feel good. And it and it sounds like you know that's what you're doing in the when you're fighting, and probably in normal relationship. I think you can explain that a little better than I can.
3: Well, if you're in my care, which is what the deal is. Then I should know what your kryptonite is, or what you're most afraid of. What would knock you for a loop? What would the what were the one or two or three injuries you you incurred during childhood that will be there till the day you die? Now for me, um, it's it, it, you know it's feeling less than or feeling uh, you know that the people I want approval from that I want uh, to be able to sit at the table with don't want me. That comes from my childhood. Now I'm 62 years old, so you'd think that I'd, I'd mastered that, and I have. But I will still be vulnerable to that uh, even today if the situation comes up. My wife knows me very well. She knows the symptoms of this, and she knows how to minister to me. I know what her fears are. I know what will get her thrown for a loop. For some people, it's not feeling smart. For others, it's not feeling attractive. For others, it's not feeling like they're trusted ever or wanted. Um, there's always something in our past that will knock us for a loop and, uh, and uh, put us out of commission for a while. Uh, that you know what that is, that I know what that is, goes a long way to making us un, uh, you know, irreplaceable, right? Because I know this about you, I know when it happens, and I know what to do about it. Other people don't. I do. And this is what we want. I can't tell you, Rebecca, how many times I'm with couples who have been together for 20, 30 years, and I know more about them in the first two hours than they know about each other in terms of, what is your partner's worst fears? What does your partner love the most? How do you get your partner home? Um, if you used bait or a lure, what would you use? Um, people actually don't know, and it's because I think they don't think they should have to know. Uh, but yet, again, in a secure functioning relationship, this is, this is a survival thing. We're supposed to know this stuff. It's supposed to be our main career. And if people do that, they'll have a very, I think, satisfying relationship.
2: Um, Yeah, it sounds like it will. Um, There's a a lot that we could continue to talk about. We had two books um, that we went through, Wired for Dating and Wired for Love. Um, I recommend anybody to pick these up, whether you are um, looking to start a relationship or to make the one that you have better. Um, Now, Stan, is there um, any way that people can get a hold of you if they want any more information?
3: Absolutely, people can go to my name, Stan Tatkin, T-A-T-K-I-N dot com, and there you'll find, you know, uh, information about me, also some articles and videos and interviews like this one. People also, I'd like to direct them to uh, to my TED talk, and you can find that by just googling Tatkin, T-A-T-K-I-N, TED, and you'll be able to pull up the TED talk. Um, I'm very proud of that, and those people who are interested in learning. Um, how to work in the way that I'm describing which is a psychobiological approach to couple therapy are welcome to visit our training site Which is the pact p-a-c-t? institute Dot-com we train therapists all over the world in Canada as well And also my wife and I do a couple of retreats um, all over the world we have one coming up in Tuscany next year and we're, uh, throughout the United States, uh, you can go to either site and find where we're, uh, we are doing our couples' retreats, and um, I really highly recommend them.
2: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stan. This was a great show.
3: Thank you, Rebecca.
2: Uh, so th- thanks, everybody, for listening, and just be sure to make today a great day.